and welcome to Rising. We have a momentous show for you today. Hmm, that sounds exciting. Brianna, what is going on? Well, we have Eric Lovitz joining us to discuss that soup throwing incident heard around the world. Plus, we'll get into some Georgia midterms updates. But first, the country's top Democrats are making their final pitches to voters ahead of November voting. At a campaign speech in Washington, D.C. this week, President Biden concluded his appearance by promising to send legislation protecting access to abortion to Capitol Hill next session. Here's the promise I make to you and the American people. The first bill that I will send to the Congress will be to codify Roe v. Wade. Despite the president's impassioned ninth-inning pledge, abortion has yet to crack voters' top concerns this election cycle. It is not uh, registering as highly as inflation, crime, immigration, for instance. The Hill's Hannah Trudeau notes, quote, abortion as a closing pitch was always going to be a really risky proposition, but up against the economy, it makes it look almost fringe. Of course, many people will disagree with this, but the cost of gas is extremely important to nearly everyone. Abortion is simply not. However, when challenged over Democrats' messaging priorities, House Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi denied that inflation and crime were actually top of voters' minds. Let's watch. You and the president have done so much in terms of domestic concerns, the economy. So why is this message, why do you think the president has gotten this message through the voters? Well, first of all, uh, let me say uh, that I think that much of what you've said I don't agree with. That is okay. to say, the New York Times poll, I think, is an outlier poll. You decide one poll, but all the other. It's polls also the real clear different... politics average no. is showing similar issues. No, but they, but that was one that brought down the average, and it was an outlier. It wasn't even that big a sample, so I, I dismiss that. Hmm. It's such a weird debate to me mm -hmm. be, because treating abortion versus talking about the economy as a zero-sum game, nobody asked you to do that. I think you, you saw this when Bernie Sanders you know, made the same recommendation last week. Hey, Democrats, you've got to also talk about the economy. People attacked him as though he was saying that abortion doesn't matter and abortion isn't important. And of course it is, right? We saw how well the abortion ballot measure did uh, or the, uh, defeating the you know, constitutional amendment in Kansas did, how it motivated a lot of people go to, to go to the polls. And I think that it is important to, you know, make some commitments about abortion as an issue. It has been a mobilizing issue for Democrats to get to the polls. However, this resistance to also accommodating people's interest in the economy and having their kitchen table issues and budget concerns met, it's really odd. Yeah, it is really odd. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's where you focus on. It, it is, I, I do think abortion is getting a lot of attention from Joe Biden, from Nancy Pelosi, from leading Democrats. Which is not to say that, like, I, I think that it is a winning issue for Democrats, given how far Republicans in some places have, have gone. Of course, there's a little bit of, of going too far, I think, with, with some Democrats. You saw, I think, John Fetterman was asked about it. I believe the Arizona uh, gubernatorial candidate was asked about it on the Democratic side and uh, asked kind of really easy questions about, well, do you favor any limitations, essentially, on abortion at all? And they both said no. And I think, like, the right, like, up until birth, you, you can just say, no, abortion, yeah, should be, should be legal. Republicans are extremists. They want to criminalize, you know, they want, yeah, that's you know, 14-year-olds who've suffered sexual assault to not be able to have abortions, et cetera. But you could just say, but, you know, I don't favor late-term abortion. Yeah, or I, I, I support a, the standards that existed exactly. for the overturning yes. of Roe v. Wade, which, or Dobbs, which is the 
uh, or Casey rather, overturning yeah. of Casey, which is the standard that an overwhelming majority of Americans, including right? I think in many cases support. you have you have both. Um, you know, you have Republicans who support um, uh, who oppose abortion rights or support abortion restrictions that are far outside what the, what most people want, and then in some places you have Democrats that support them to a degree outside, somewhat outside. Well, I, I think I think that laws. is not entirely true. I don't think that the the kind of mythology around late-term abortions was taking a lot of businesses where these were wanted pregnancies that were not going to be viable and kind of uh, mischaracterizing women who are in a really tough position of having to basically terminate a pregnancy to either save their lives, that pregnancy they wanted, because otherwise why would you have carried it to nine months? Right. Um, or the baby wasn't going to be But almost no, almost no Republicans that. favor like no, that nobody, kind of restriction either. Well, sure, but they definitely messaged for decades around the idea that Democrats were just trying to kill babies in the ninth month for no reason at all. And I do think that when they ask things like, do you support any restrictions, they're setting a trap for Democrats to say no and then recreate this idea that there's an indifference to, the, to kind of a, a nine-month-old baby that is about to be born being killed in a way that is not medically indicated and never, never actually happens. But the Democrats' other problem with this abortion issue is that they're the boy who cried wolf. They have been talking about codifying Roe v. Wade forever. And I think there was a lot of really healthy outrage from even mainstream neolib corporate Democratic voter types around the Dobbs decision because they woke up and there was this moment where like the left has been screaming for a long time. They were like, Democratic Party, what have you been doing? And why should we trust you mm -hmm. to do the right thing if we just keep voting you, voting you, voting for you? Barack Obama and the famous clips that have been circulating around said when he was running that it was going to be a date like a, a, mm -hmm. a top tier priority for him. He gets into office and then gives a speech saying it's just not high on my agenda right now. So it does feel really manipulative for them to be dangling this mm -hmm. over Democratic voters when they've had literally decades to codify this if they really cared. Mm. Well, we're still we, uh, weeks away, a couple weeks away from Election Day. However, Democrats are already playing the blame game in the event that they don't do very well and placing much of that blame at the leader of their party himself, President Biden, and his administration's handling of inflation. He stands to catch most of the flack, according to The Hill's Amy Parnes. Her Democratic sources say the president will end up being, quote, the fall guy for the party's midterm performance even if some don't think that criticism is entirely fair. Now, again, the president's party often performs poorly in this election, the election following, uh, following his election. So the expectations were kind of low. Now, we are also going through a just a horrible time in the economy that I, I would have put some blame on yeah. the administration's policies. Some of it was not some of it is not avoidable. It's just kind of happening. Um, so you would think, actually, that Republicans would be set up for a massive victory. We're actually not contemplating a massive victory. We're going back and forth a little bit. Um, there was a period where it was looking like they were going to have a blowout. Then it was like, well, they're really underperforming expectations. Now, frankly, I, I think we all expect the House to go to Republicans. Uh, the Senate is, we have these like five very, very close yeah. races. So it's very close. If they all break one way, it could end up looking like a massive Republican victory. I don't expect that would happen, that to happen, but it could happen. 
Um, you could also ha have Democrats uh, increase, and it's 50-50 with Kamala Harris. They could get to 51. They could get it to 52. Um, I kind of I'm looking at the races and which way I think they might go. I kind of expect Democrats to get to 51, but we'll see. So that that actually puts it on Republicans. They like they should be doing better, and yeah. they have some, but they have some candidates that are not great. Um, that are a little outside, uh, too far right, given given where Arizona is, given where Pennsylvania is, and um, and look, the party needs to shed itself of Trump. It just does, and yeah. then it could be it could be with DeSantis right now as the leader of the Republican conservative movement with with Glenn Youngkin style candidates, they would be they would be set up for like the end of history. They would be this would be like like 1980. This would be a massive, massive Republican red wave. I think we might get we're going to get like a little baby wave. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's well, a missed opportunity. We'll, Huge we'll, missed we'll opportunity. We'll obviously see. And if if Joe Biden takes the blame for his party's failures, I got to say it would feel like a first from a pro progressive standpoint. I can already hear I can feel Abigail Spanberger type Democrats generating their Election Day takes about how it was defund the police. Something yeah. that, frankly, you is socialists not really a part were out of there, out there saying the S word and spooking <laughs> right. voters into right. uh, the, the going to Republican. Two socialists left. Social, we don't even like our own socialists in Congress at this point, but somehow I'm sure it'll be their fault. <laughs> but uh, we'll be talking more about inflation and whose fault it really is in my radar next. Stick with us. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, they say doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is a sign of insanity. So why has the conversation about how to reduce inflation remained so limited to the interest rate hikes Biden has been implementing since March, despite not getting significant results? The Fed has hiked interest rates five times in 2022, and these hikes have come with warnings from Federal Reserve Board Chair Jerome Powell that they will, quote, bring some pain to households and businesses. That's hardly an admission the Biden administration should be welcoming in the middle of a tough midterm season. So why are elite economists like Powell and Clinton favorite Larry Summers singularly focused on higher interest rates and higher unemployment as solutions to rising inflation, ignoring alternatives that would hurt the people less? Is it because they would hurt their Wall Street friends more? This is how folks are responding to high inflation in France. Thousands of working people are in the streets demanding higher wages and protesting rising living costs, threatening to withhold their labor in a general strike if corporations don't share their record profits with the people that really worked to achieve those profits. Meanwhile, here in America, J.P. Morgan CEO and bailout recipient Jamie Dimon is saying the quiet part out loud. I don't look at a recession as a bad thing. Even a recession could be good for J.P. Morgan's share price. Here is their chairman and CEO, Jamie Dimon. I mean, it's bad for America. It's bad for the people unemployed. It's usually an opportunity for J.P. Morgan. <laughs> Straight from the horse's mouth, recessions are good for Wall Street. And he's not the only one. Former Treasury Secretary Larry Summers was ratioed on Twitter for blaming inflation on workers earning too much money. Are, are you earning too much money? Are your pockets bursting at the seams? Are you finding it easier to pay for your kid's education or your 
hospital bills or your rent? Have you maybe noticed that the minimum wage hasn't gone up since 2009, even though the cost of everything else has? If you feel like real wages have not budged in decades, you're right, they haven't. So what are leading neoliberal economists saying that the real problem here is that workers aren't working enough and that wages are just too high? Look, here's something conservatives and leftists can agree on. Raising interest rates isn't working. That's the subheadline from a recent Guardian report that examines why prices have been persistently high even as the Federal Reserve continues to raise interest rates. The Fed's overly aggressive actions are shoving our economy to the brink of a devastating recession, economist Rikin Maboud told the, told the Guardian. And the reason is obvious to anyone who cares to look at the roots of what is in reality a global crisis, not just an American one. Supply chain bottlenecks, a volatile global energy market, and rampant corporate profiteering cannot be solved by additional rate hikes. I mean, obviously, look, the reason the political discourse has been focused on interest rate hikes is because it's basically the only tool at the disposal of the Federal Reserve. But it is not the only tool at the disposal of the Biden administration, which has a mixed record on using maximum political pressure to address the high prices millions of Americans are seeing not just at the gas pump, but in grocery stores, on their rent checks, and their hospital bills. For example, Biden will announce today that he's releasing 15 million barrels of oil from the nation's energy reserves. But that's just simply a continuation of his plan announced back in March to release 180 million total barrels from our reserves. The price of oil did come down since the summer, but September saw rising prices and Biden is now facing the consequences of OPEC's decision to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. Hmm, if only there were some other factor at play here that Biden could influence to bring down prices. Perhaps a significant geopolitical entanglement that caused crude oil prices to skyrocket from $76 per barrel at the start of January 2022 to $110 per barrel on March 4th, 2022. What happened between January and March of this year? I'm sure if I just think hard enough, oh yeah, the war in Ukraine. But the Biden administration has been clear. It's more important to weaken Russia at any cost than to keep costs down or even win midterms, perhaps. Not to mention that with defense stocks way, way up, who would want to mess with the profits being earned by Lockheed Martin and the like? After all, 20 members of Congress personally invest in weapons contractors that will profit from the Ukraine aid packages. The Biden administration gets closer to the root of the, infl of, of the inflation crisis as it attempts to address food prices. Earlier this year, Biden pledged to invest $1 billion to support independent meat processors, the idea being that it would boost competition and bring down prices. Moreover, the DOJ is investigating price fixing in the meat packing industry. But that's just the tip of the price gouging iceberg. Over half of the increase in prices that have occurred during the COVID era are attributable to fatter profit margins, according to the author of a new report from the Economic Policy Institute. Quote, companies are taking higher inputs, putting a, bigger, uh, putting a bigger markup on them than they were previously, and then passing that on to consumers. That's you. An analysis of 100 top corporations' SEC filings show that 80 of those 100 companies had increased net profits since 2019, even as inflation flattened workers' wage gains. Think about that. 
Even as companies claim they couldn't do anything about high demand and the cost that came with a supply chain crisis, they were seeing record profits and passing more costs off to you because they could. Not only is there nearly no mainstream discourse about this problem in this country, Americans seem largely unaware of the fact that things could be run differently. Although there are no specific laws prohibiting price gouging in the EU, for instance, they do have laws that prevent so-called dominant businesses from directly or indirectly imposing unfair purchase or selling prices or other unfair trading conditions. France has lower inflation rates than we do, better consumer protections, and they're still, still fighting in the streets for more. Meanwhile, in the U.S., two of the largest supermarket chains, Albertsons and Kroger's, are planning to merge, setting the stage for even less competition and even higher food costs. As journalist Mo Tachik explained earlier this week, you can see that grocery stores are especially anti-competitive by comparing price increases in grocery stores at 13% to inflation in restaurants, which is only about 4.5%. The reason she explains is that grocery stores are much more anti-competitive compared to the dog-eat-dog -dog restaurant industry. Because they can, Kroger has committed $4 billion to stock buybacks since COVID started. Instead of investing in its businesses, it has chosen to drive up its own stock price, all while closing supermarkets to avoid paying the $4 to $5 an hour hero pay bonus implemented early in the pandemic. Albertsons, controlled by private equity firms, has basically been run into the ground and squeezed for corporate profit with no concern for what happens to the business or the people who work there or shop there. Post-merger, Kroger stands to corner a full 16% of the U.S. grocery market. The industry may be closer to an oligopoly than we think, a Morgan Stanley an analyst acknowledged. Here's to fancy ice cream getting so expensive that even Nancy Pelosi might think twice before stocking her freezer with a $14 a pint Haagen-Dazs. <laughs> now, there is some good news. There has been opposition to the merger from left voices like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and a hearing will be held next month to evaluate the anti-competitive inflation-raising implications of this merger. And on the oil price front, Representative Katie Porter of California has introduced and passed a bill in the House that would make it illegal for oil companies to gouge people during emergencies, a bill that, regrettably, no Republicans voted for. But this is the problem. Despite some common-sense solutions existing in the policy sphere to tackle inflation, the discourse at present is mostly Democrats parroting the Fed's line about raising interest rates and defending Biden, while Republicans play the blame game without proposing any policies that could actually put more money in the pockets of working Americans. Turn on mainstream news and you'll hear little to nothing about the Russia-Ukraine war, price gouging, or lax antitrust protections as drivers of inflation. And so there's little appetite for solutions. Keeping the public ignorant of how our economic reality could improve while focusing on, say, the culture wars works. Luckily, we here have the power to start to shift that conversation. Mm. So I was pleasantly surprised. I, I was reading this New York Guardian article that came out a few days ago about this uh, new economic policy report about the drivers of inflation and what could be done. And it's both kind of disappointing insofar as we haven't pursued it. And so many of these ideas seem novel to the ear, even for a big news consumer like myself, um, but also optimistic because I do think there's a kind of... Um, 
uh, uh, kind of paralysis that can set in when you are just so used to hearing month after month after month, I guess we've got to do another interest hike. And then you hear all the negative consequences of that, and it's hard to see how to get out of that sort of a spiral. Well, yeah, it sounds like this is an area where you and I can find some common agreement because people of my ideological bent um, are, are inclined to say that also government um, spending has a bad impact on inflation, and there are some things we should cut. But you were agreeing that there were, for instance, the Ukraine uh, effort, our defense budget, um, there are areas where we can agree on, on reducing the government's activity, and I think that would be a, 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 a marvelous way to combat our spiraling out of control inflation. And just, obviously this is debated among economists, but there are some studies that have found um, government, um, runaway government spending uh, cannot, uh, that will cause inflation to get worse even and will counteract whatever they're doing with the interest rate hikes. Yeah, I mean, look, this, this is the issue. When I was looking at the kind of messaging that you were seeing from conservatives, I was looking at some things that Rhonda Sanders had said. Everyone's pointing to the idea that the COVID relief packages fueled this crisis that we're in right now without really owning up to the fact that those packages were necessary to keep the economy mm -hmm. going and that they were enormously popular at the time. They were necessary to get, you know, vaccines but those distributed both be true. and all of the Right, right. Sure. So, so here's the question. The question now is who's going to feel the pain of getting everything back in line? Mm -hmm. And is there a reason that the policies that are being pursued are those that are going to disproportionately affect working people as opposed to curbing the kind of spending, let's say Ukraine yes. war spending, that millions, has been millions benefiting and millions Lockheed Martin week. and Raytheon yeah, sure. and all of these kinds of people. Moreover, what are you, even if you believe that, say, those bail, the, the COVID packages were a bad idea, it's a done deal. So what is your plan now? Republicans, in good faith, I'm asking this question for getting things back on track without completely abandoning mm -hmm. working and poor people. And when I looked at what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, he has been very critical of the COVID relief packages as drivers of inflation at the same time that he's using federal funds dispersed through those packages to give these, I think, $450 per child um, distributions to families in Florida, which I think is a good thing. But it is that very money that he is criticizing for having driven inflation. So there's, there's this tension here. There, I understand that tension, but I do think the, uh, and I, I believe Kevin McCarthy said it, if Republicans take control of the House, uh, there's far more likely to be a halt to the spending on the Ukrainian war effort under, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, right, under Republican leadership than under Democratic yeah. leadership at this point. I think it's more likely, but given that still a small fraction of Republicans, only 11 of the 50 senators and only, I think it was like the high 50s uh, in the House yeah. um, of the 200. Well, we'll see. It's going to be a slightly different, I mean, it's going to be a slightly different House. It's going to be a House more characterized by your, you know, those kinds of Republican voices who are very stridently anti-war. They're a minority right now, but they're a growing one. Yeah, well, it will be interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. Either way it goes, we'll have more Rising for you coming up next. Public opinion polls in our state show support for the right to abortion, Medicaid expansion, and banning assault weapons. You are on the side of public opinion in each of these issues, yet you are behind in almost every poll. Why? I do not believe that I'm behind. I believe that I'm making the case for Georgia, the case for electing me as the next governor, because the current failures we have seen in this state are not only damning, they are disqualified.
That was Democratic gubernatorial candidate Stacey Abrams in Monday night's debate against incumbent Governor Brian Kemp and Libertarian candidate Shane Hazel. Abrams is by far Kemp's biggest challenge, but new polling shows that he's ahead of her by about five... Three, five or three points, depending on how we're exactly conducting the polls. About 3% of likely voters remain undecided in the Peach State, giving Kemp and Abrams an opportunity to score points with those who are still uncertain. The debate, which aired on the state's first day of early voting, was policy-heavy, with Kemp highlighting his record on lifting pandemic restrictions, boosting the state's budget surplus, and even signing a voter reform law. Abrams, who unsuccessfully ran against Kemp in 2018, implemented a similar strategy this time around, focusing on the need for greater racial equity and addressing voter suppression and police discrimination against black and brown people. Abrams nearly bested Kemp in 2018. Can she pull off a win this time, Robbie? What do you think? Well, she's not faring quite as well <laughs> as last time, and she came up short last time. Yeah. Um, although, uh, right, she claimed that that was due to various voter irregularities and issues, yeah. um, not something you're supposed to say anymore, but it was okay to say that it, back then. Yeah, it's, but, it's uh, so, well, okay, saying that there, you think okay, there's not voting, the same. Fraud, that the Voting Rights Act has been repealed, that there are consequences, the ballot box, I mean, there were these, this evidence of that kind of thing going on. But I, I take the, the broader point, which is that sometimes I feel like some legitimate factors existing keep Democrats from engaging with the mm -hmm. But the real but for cause of their loss. So there has been some level of voter fraud discrimination since the time immemorial in the United States of America. That's why we had a Voting Rights Act in the th first place. But when you look at how many people voted in 2020 and record turnout in 2020, right. the story doesn't entirely line up. Um, and it, it, I, I fear sometimes there are more, there are more people voting right, for right. both for both right. Trump and Biden. Right, and I sometimes ten I'm, million more votes. I, I'm concerned <laughs> that the narrative around not I don't mean the narrative to to say that it's not true, but that right. the conversation around voter fraud prevents Democratic candidates from really engaging with the things that they can more readily control in their messaging, um, in their outreach, etc. I also wanted to point out, so that, that was the first question in the debate, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I saw some conservatives reacting to it like, wow, the first question was, you're right about everything, and everyone agrees with you, uh, you know, why, why aren't you more popular? Um, but y you were saying before we started uh, playing this segment that the, then you think the implication of that is, well, there's something personally wrong with Stacey well, yeah. Abrams, so it's not a very nice question. I, I mean, yes, or, I mean, look, this is something that comes up with progressives all the time, because the polls are overwhelmingly in support of minimum wage raise, uh, Medicare for all, uh, abortion rights, common sense gun control, all of these things. I talk about this ad nauseum mm -hmm. in my radars, you know, and I talk about how the reason, in my view, as a progressive, why there isn't more consensus at the ballot box is because there is intense messaging around other kinds of issues that get voters to reprioritize, you know, certain kinds of cultural issues and other things over the kind of stuff that is really on, 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 uh, available to actually vote on, mm -hmm. right? In Stacey Abrams' case, I do think that in some ways she's a better communicator than a lot of other Democrats. I was impressed with her performance in, a lar in large part in 2018, but I do think that she's leaned a little bit too far into some of the culture war conversations and has demonstrated not as much willingness mm -hmm. to speak and engage directly with white rural voters, voters of all kinds in the state of Georgia, and to contend with some of her failures. When I talked to a Georgia voter recently on, on my call-in show, he brought up the, um, the, the previous program that, uh, that basically allowed every Georgia student 
who hit a certain grade point average to go to school for free or close to free in the state, um, that she was very famous for compromising uh, uh, in the state, and people still remember. There's a conversation about whether or not you know Biden lied to the people right. of Georgia about getting them the two thousand dollars checks and canceling all HBCU debt when there's a, a number of very significant HBCUs she's, in the in the state. She has to contend with that record. She's also up against a Republican who is in the category that I, I would say are strong strong candidates. Uh, Brian Kemp, who is not you know who He's is not, not a, an election denier, yeah. is not is not so far down MAGA world that he is thus unappealing to moderate, independent, et cetera, vote. He, you know, he, he has a, he's, he's a normal, he's a normal Republican, yeah. which is a massive benefit. And, and like, an this incumbent. is a lesson. He's an incumbent, And the world too. hasn't fallen apart because he's been governor. Right, right. And that, that is showing people like him, Youngkin, a couple others, show the path forward, I think, for Republicans. Mm. Like, this kind of candidate, it would be... They, they can they can rule the country with a massive majority if they if they're a little bit more disciplined about who they elevate. Yeah. And uh, and he's really showing that, which is why I expect him to win. Like we don't know if if, if the same state Herschel Walker might we don't know, but he, right now if it goes exactly where the polls have it. Kemp is going to win, and Herschel Walker is going to lose. <laughs> yeah. Which is, so there are people voting only for Kemp and not for, for Walker. Yeah, so for sure. Keep that in mind. More rising uh, right after this. Florida Senator Marco Rubio and Democratic challenger and Congresswoman Val Deming sparred in a debate last night in the Sunshine State. Both candidates had no shortage of fiery words for one another, hitting on hot-button issues from abortion rights, the state's flimsy property insurance market, guns, and other topics. Dimmings wasted no time taking a swipe at Rubio on guns. Let's watch. How long will you watch people being gunned down in first grade, fourth grade, high school, college, church, synagogue, a grocery store, a movie theater, a mall, and a nightclub, Congresswoman. and do nothing? Rubio pushed back on Deming's attacks on what she characterizes as inaction on gun violence. Americans have a Second Amendment right to protect themselves. They have, and, and, and these killers that are out there, if they're intent on killing as they are, they have found multiple ways to get a hold of weapons and cause mass destruction. Just the other day he used a shotgun, which would have been covered by any of these restrictions. I have a bipartisan red flag law sponsored with Senator Jack Reed. But the problem is that the leftists in the, in the Senate and in the House, like, Senator, like Congresswoman Deming's, are against it because they want the California red flag law that allows your right. coworker has a grudge against that's, you and can go to a judge and take away your guns. That I'll never support. Stolen Valor, Val Demings is not a leftist. <laughs> but both Rubio and Demings didn't back down. The debate is likely to have little, a little impact on voters. The congresswoman is still trailing the senator by four or five percentage points. What do you make of that exchange, Robbie? That was uh, that was a fiery exchange. Mm -hmm. Our uh, our, our scriptwriters are correct <laughs> to use that adjective. Um, yeah, Rubio is not uh, my favorite Republican, although I agree with him on this issue, and uh, so do enough Floridians, or they're insufficiently indifferent to it because he is going to win re-election in all likelihood. I suspect. Mm. Um, you know, Marco Rubio is an interesting character because. He was kind of selected, I would say, by, by the most elite elements of conservative media. He mm -hmm. was kind of minted as the next, um, the, the next cool thing. Uh, cool is the wrong word. <laughs> the next like, 
like conservative celebrity that he you know, he had it all going on. He had a he has a you know a Latino background, um, so he you know conservatives love to to have someone who checks some boxes. He's relatively uh, young, young, uh, very you know, well spoken in a kind of perfunctory way, mm-hmm. and uh, he was he was the choice of a lot I would say of a lot of Republican intellectuals, and also he was at the time you know this is now ten ten years ago plus um, he was a a kind of neoconservative mm-hmm. really in his outlook at a time when that ideology was still clearly out of not popular among voters, but Republican elites, conservative elites in the media, very reluctant to let neoconservatism go. They still they thought they could cling to it and force it on their voters. And he was he was going to be the guy to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't work out that way. Yeah, here comes Trump. <laughs> yeah, did Coining not. Little, little Mark Rubio and these kinds of attacks really stuck. And yeah. it's interesting to see him in this kind of a context because it Val Demings is a kind of a powerful speaker. She was very boldly, um, you know, approaching all of these issues in the context of the, of the debate. And it did, it did put me in the mind of how Rubio was kind of humbled in the Trump era. However, On unlike, the debate stage in, in particular. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> However, unlike Trump, the people who I think were inclined to even consider Rubio, I don't know if they're especially inclined to consider Val Demings and whether or not this kind of oratory does a lot to switch, change people's minds. I think it might have the effect of galvanizing Democratic voters to have a higher turnout, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure how this exchange and exchanges like this that happened throughout the debate, which went very viral on Twitter and which, which were very much lauded across um, you know, the, the feeds of mainstream Democrats, it's actually going to fly in the state. Well, a state that is increasingly becoming just, I mean, just a red state, right? I mean, uh, Yeah, but it's, it is a red state where 60% of the voters, I'm sorry to keep bringing this up, but voted for a minimum wage raise and, mm-hmm. and where there's a lot of, frankly, diversity of opinion. And also, as we talked about in another segment with respect to Stacey Abrams, it is also true that for a lot of these policy issues, they aren't really partisan policy issues. They are widely supported, whether it's the abortion rights that people had under a Roe slash Casey regime, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's uh, basic li- minimum wage protections, antitrust protections. People want all of these kinds of things. Democrats are the only ones. Well, it depends really how you. It depends a little bit how you ask the question. They they don't. D- voters don't like the words Medicare for all very much, but they do. I, right. I, I concede like well, aspects of the under for, the underlying <laughs> for $15 policy. minimum wage. Yeah. So yeah. At the, so at the end of the day, you know. It does come down to something other than yeah. the policies on paper, and I, think I mean, if, Flor- if Flor- Floridian voters wanted want whatever you know, extremely restrictive uh, gun program that Val Demings wants, then they would vote for her, wouldn't wouldn't they? Clearly, well, they don't. Well, what is the, what is the allegedly extremely um, restrictive gun program? Because I, I do I did feel like there was, and I mean, it's not a feeling. There was, in fact, bipartisan consensus consensus on a lot mm-hmm. of these red flag. Um, laws. There was meaningful gun legislation that was just passed earlier this year. So I'm not even entirely sure what they're arguing about in that particular instance. What what is actually the I mean, these, movement between these? Them? Well, these these conversations often come to you know some kind of debate over whether well would this okay you want to do this I'm willing to do this. But would either of these things actually cover, you know, the cases of gun violence? We're seeing some of them would. You know, sometimes, yes, you have a shooter who is of an age where if we had moved up the age a little bit, okay, then maybe that shooting wouldn't have happened. But but I I mean, I do I do take 
Marco Rubio's point is not incorrect that right. there are a, there are a lot of guns out there. There are a variety of ways to get guns, and many of the shootings we've seen would not you know would not have been sure. stopped by. And and also that in so many of these shootings you had law enforcement ostensibly aware of the issue and not doing anything. You yeah. you know you have if, if people speak up and say we need help, this person is a danger, yeah. and nothing gets done, and you like. At some point, there's just a, there's just such a collective a, a failure that cannot, I think, be put so much on the hands of the policy itself. Yeah, and this is why this is why I guess I'm having this hesitation about uh, Diving's approach here, because there's a way that she could have made her argument that didn't allow mm -hmm. Rubio to have that kind of reply. Just make the narrower argument. Of course, you know, to, to charge somebody mm -hmm. with all of the gun tragedies that happened in the country or it's in the state. Mm -hmm. You know, especially when some of them would not be addressed by the gun reform that you're advocating, it can start to shift from seeming like a righteous, righteously mm -hmm. indignant statement, a fact, to kind of a little bit of a cheap shot. And I think making a different kind of pitch that says, you know, I, I also respect people's Second Amendment rights. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that there's a certain degree of gun violence that is going to happen, and it's deeply tragic, and we have to figure out how to get more support for it the people who are you know, young or violent or disturbed or whatever, so they don't do those, these kinds of things. But here are the cases that could have been prevented by this legislation. Rubio, why don't you support mm -hmm. these kinds of things? It might not be as pithy, but I think as a, as a viewer, it seems less like a stunt. And it gives the speaker more credibility and authenticity, which I think ultimately is why so many people look at debates like these and moments like these and elections like these and just stay home. The sheriff of, uh, of Broward County, where the Parkland shooting happened, who's ter who was just the most awful kind of political act, who gave, you know, gave speech after speech, celebrating how his office handled it when we now know the training that they, they were, they had, that the deputy, had, the, the uh, school resource officer, yeah. They had that had, had bad training uh, protocols. Um, they had ignored warnings about the shooter, um, and he, he should have resigned in disgrace. Refused to dis uh, to resign. DeSantis vowed to fire him, and that was like his first act in office was to fire him, mm. which was a just outcome mm. for that. Mm. So. Mm. More rising right after this. Elnaz Rakabi, the 33-year-old Iranian rock climber who refused to wear a hijab during the International Federation of Sport Climbing's Asian Championship in South Korea, arrived back in Iran early this morning. Her return comes amid national protests in Iran following the arrest and death of a woman who wore her hijab improperly. Following the competition, Rakabi explained the entire situation was an accident due to unexpectedly being called to climb the wall, which resulted in a problem with her head covering. Joining us now to discuss is journalist and host of the Iran podcast, Negar Mortazavi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So do you accept this explanation uh, for what happened and then, you know, tell us more about the situation in Iran presently? I don't think many Iranians accept that. And Ezra Kabi showed a very brave and courageous um, act of civil disobedience when she showed up to the wall. Sometimes um, uh, women claim that their hijab fell off, for example, in Iran when the Morata police shows up. But we don't even see a hijab around her neck. She showed up without it and she did her competition and she came down. It looks like an act of civil disobedience, um, but also while returning to Iran because she's part of the uh, official team in the country. There's a lot of pressure on her. I'm sure there's pressure on her family. 
and um, it looks like she is under pressure uh, making these statements. And nevertheless, I think that act of civil disobedience, it made headlines, the images are all over and people are really braving, praising her um, bravery and courage. So other women who have been in a similar situation have been pressured to post on social media that it was an accident to try to, I guess, deflate the political valence of what they've done. And others have chosen not to go back to Iran at all for fear of reprisal. The implication here is that she, because she had to go back with the team, perhaps, that she went ahead and, you know, under some, some pressure, posted on social media that it was, in fact, an accident. That's correct. So we have had similar instances in the past, and sometimes the athlete is immediately forced into exile. So of the fear, they won't even return back to the country. Or once they do, they will be put under pressure. They could be expelled from the team, or they could, it could have very severe security consequences for them, even be detained. So I think the pressure that's put on her, obviously, we don't know the behind the scenes, but the pressure, the immense pressure that's going to be put on her, on her coaches, maybe even her family uh, seems to have resulted in this. And she seems to have wanting to return back to the country and continue her athletic career in the country. Um, but uh, obviously this is one result of the pressure that she's coming out and essentially denouncing her own act of civil disobedience or bringing up an excuse that I don't think is very much believable mm. by many Iranians. Mm. Tell us more about the protests. How are they being organized? Um, you know, what is what is that like, and and how dangerous is it given the how the government operates in the country? So the protests were first sparked about a month ago by the death of this 22-year-old Kurdish woman, Gina Massa Amini, um, who was picked up by the Morality Police and later died in police custody. She goes into a coma and dies in a hospital. The state immediately puts out a statement saying um, she had underlying health conditions. Later, they said she had a heart attack, but her family has been challenging that and saying that she was subjected to violence and brutality. Um, the protests uh, start, were started in Kurdistan, in Tehran, where she was initially detained by the Marathi police, and then it spread to all provinces across the country, dozens of cities, including some religious cities, Qom and Mashhad. We see an intersectional communities of protesters. It's led by a lot of women, young women, young girls, school girls are now also joining very bravely these protests. But we also see laborers, workers, teachers, university students, lawyers, and most recently oil workers uh, joining with strikes, with protests. So it's a, it's a diverse combination of, of different segments. And we're hearing very radical slogans against the entirety of the regime, the Islamic Republic, the Supreme Leader, the senior uh, leadership. It's, it's a, a legitimacy crisis that the regime has been dealing with for years. Um, and also it's a combination of years of anger by women who are pushing back against discrimination and violence. Mm. Well, Iran has agreed to ship more missiles and drones to Russia after Vice President Mohammed Mokber and other leading officials visited Moscow on October the 6th. An Iranian diplomat denied that the transfer breaches the 2015 UN Security Council resolution saying how and where the weapons are used is not of issue to the seller. 
Uh, so obviously, you know, this is an interesting moment on the international um, stage, Russia and Iran possibly having a closer relationship. Uh, you know, the U.S. obviously uh, backed out of the Iran deal under the Trump administration, is now having conversations with them again um, you know what uh, how, how does the the protesting on the ground change or complicate you know what Iran's diplomatic situation is internationally with with Russia and the US well the protest or the domestic unrest definitely creates a legitimacy crisis that the regime has to deal with while they're dealing with their foreign uh, policy issues with the country and it uh, delegitimizes their position when it comes to the presence on the world stage. And the Iranian administration with a hardline president, with a hardline parliament, sort of the conservative hardline camp taking over um, all segments of power has made more of a shift from the West to the East, East with the U.S. pull out of the nuclear negotiations, with um, more isolation from Europeans, U.S. and Europe, and with this takeover inside Iran of the hardliners, we've seen more of a shift from the West towards China for trade and towards Russia for military support um, and just uh, military engagement with Iran. And Iran siding with Russia in this uh, war in Ukraine is also uh, part of that big package of that shift um, from the West towards the East. Do you think it has any, um, you know, does the public opinion about that realignment have any relationship to the ongoing protest and the desire to see uh, a different, uh, kind of a different administration, a different, different change in leadership at all? Or are those uh, issues kind of separated in the minds of people who are speaking out right now in Iran? Well, it's a very cool space. It's very securitized. It's very difficult difficult to conduct opinion polls inside the country. And just public opinion doesn't really impact uh, the country's foreign policy, regional policy much. Uh, we hear also from various different corners in the Iranian society, even some in inside the country in opposition and some within the uh, political structure criticizing sort of this shift to the east or the stalemate when it comes to the nuclear negotiations with the U.S. and also the aligning with Russia as an aggressor on Ukraine in this war. But nevertheless, it's the strategic decision that the, the regime has made and also part of that entire realignment or uh, shift from uh, from the West to come out of that that form of isolation when it comes to trade, when it comes to business, and also um, military power and, and support. Russia and China, two big powers in the East, veto members in the Security Council. They've provided political support to Iran, economic support in the face of sanctions. And it just seems like Iran is... Uh, doubling down on that uh, on that relationship mm. and that support with the with the Eastern powers. Mm. Negar Murtazavi, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We'll have more rising right after this. Last Friday, two members of the climate activist group Just Stop Oil threw Heinz tomato soup at a Vincent van Gogh painting at the London National Gallery. The activists say their goal is to, quote, ensure the government commits to ending all new licenses and consents for the exploration, development, and production of fossil fuels in the UK. Joining us now to discuss whether this is an effective tactic is Eric Levitz, senior writer at New York Magazine. Welcome, Eric. Hi. Thanks for having me. 
All right, so let's start off by just hearing your pitch for why this was a poorly thought out activism here. Sure, yeah. Well, I, I want to say, you know, I, I admire the, um, you know, sort of bravery of these activists in terms of, you know, risking arrest for the sake of a, a cause that they really believed in. You know, I wrote in my piece that uh, when I was their age, the only cause I think I risked arrest for was getting stoned in parks. So, you know, more power to them in that respect. But ultimately, I don't think that at this point in time, the challenge for climate change is really about raising awareness um, or, for that matter, about keeping uh, fossil fuel in the ground so much as it is about developing clean energy technology that will make it so that there isn't this stark tension between keeping people's heating and electricity bills low and uh, limiting carbon emissions. Because ultimately, as we're seeing right now in the energy crunch, uh, that you know the whole world is going through to an extent, but especially in Europe and South Asia, um, people ultimately value you know their day-to-day -day material needs more than the threat of climate change, which is very real, but is ultimately for a lot of people sort of abstract and long-term relative to I can't afford my uh, eating anymore, and so I'm going to shiver at night, or I'm going to have to spend less on groceries, and my kids are going to have to go a little hungry. These concerns come first. You know, there's kind of a hierarchy of needs, as like the psychologist Abraham Maslow said. And so it's just really important to make sure, you know, to keep people invested um, in uh, the green transition to, to make sure that that proceeds in a way where people are not materially harmed in the present, especially working class people. So I completely agree, Eric, that there people are being kind of presented with this trade-off of their kind of immediate energy needs uh, and the, the, the broader uh, kind of significant structural shifts that are needed to actually address climate change. It's not clear to me that this protest is what's kind of um, playing on those tensions or even ignoring those tensions as they exist, it seems to me that unless you believe that countries like the UK where this protest happened or any other of the you know, overwhelming, uh, countries that are overwhelmingly responsible for the bulk of pollution like the United States, unless you believe that they are as committed to doing the most that they have to do to transition to clean energy now, even accepting that in the shorter term, there is going to have to still be a reliance on fossil fuels. Unless you think there is a maximalist, uh, full-fledged approach to that transition, isn't it still useful for climate activists to keep pushing for that amount of investment in a green transition to be pursued? And isn't a protest like this well-calculated to to, to put tension on those actors like the fossil fuel companies that fund uh, this museum and like the elite patrons who perhaps are more invested in the longevity of the Van Gogh than they are um, the longevity of the planet. Yeah, so I think that do we need more climate activism to try to keep this issue at front and center uh, on the agenda? I, I think yes. Um, have these sorts of actions uh, had, you know, a positive impact in terms of influencing elite discourse and moving this um, issue to the center of, of those priorities? I, I think so. Um, but we have to think about in the, the current context, you know, two things. One, I think that is our emphasis going to be on limiting the supply of a commodity that is currently in shortage and that people cannot afford um, and that people are very concerned about, you know, natural gas, and oil and gasoline prices, these are among the top concerns that voters have. Are we going to identify our movement with limiting this thing that, that, that people want more of? Or rather, are we going to identify it with, um, in fact, something that, that provides you the benefit 
that those fuels do, but without the cost of this terrible pollution, this terrible, uh, you know, impact, not just, you know, on the climate, but also on your lungs, um, you know, a more sort of uh, positive vision where there is less of a trade-off. Separately from that, you have to think about in terms of your direct actions, ones that are going to um, increase support for the cause more than they increase sort of antagonistic feelings towards uh, the movement. Um, and, you know, I, I, there was glass over this Van Gogh. The Van Gogh was not destroyed. Um, so I, I, I kind of, you know, it's a good piece of performance art to an extent. Uh, but, you know, the same group was spending, um, you know, I think the full previous week blocking traffic in the center of London, which will get people's attention. Um, but, but to the extent that we don't currently have a mass base that is really mobilized, um, demanding their government make the changes that we need to see. I don't think that, you know, making people late for work, potentially, you know, getting them in trouble with their bosses. I, I don't know. I, I, it's not clear to me that that is going to move the needle the, the way that we need to. Yeah, I, that would be the reaction I would have to it is that I think if you asked, you know, if you surveyed 100 people, you told them what happened, that they, you know, they threw soup at this painting without giving the additional context that actually, you know, the painting wasn't harmed, et cetera, et cetera. And here they, they, you know, here's why they did it. If they, if they just heard about this incident, which, you know, most people are not going to follow through on all the nitty gritty details of it, I, I assume the majority opinion would be that's dumb. These people are crazy. So it, I, I do take the point of that this is spreading kind of negative attention for a cause, which is not what you want to do. It, it, it gains attention, but not necessarily the right kind of attention, I think, very clearly in this. Well, well let's talk about that, though, Robbie. So here, here are the options. And so, some, I remember uh, Tommy Vitor of Positive mm -hmm. America tweeted something along the lines of, this is something that's calculated to make me less likely to want to support climate change. Mm -hmm. And I was really struck by that because so often when leftists are trying to raise concerns about um, you know, various kind of framing and the emphasis on certain kinds of weaponized identity politics, et cetera, you get a lot of, of pushback from the same liberal cohorts that say, you know, if, if, you, if, you are will, if you weren't as invested in these social justice policies because it was attached to X, Y, and D, then you're really just a racist deep down and you didn't really care in the first place and you're not someone we're trying to convince. In this context, everyone seems to be very cavalier about saying, well, this makes me want to pollute harder, even though they really position themselves as genuine um, supporters of climate policy. I don't know that I believe that I believe it's true that anybody who cares about the Green, Green New Deal is going to care about it one might less than this. And the people who might think this is stupid still don't, it's going to neg negatively affect their investment in the climate movement. It is, however, causing a conversation to be happening right now that otherwise wouldn't be happening. What do you make of that, Eric? Yeah, well, I will say, like, after I learned about the uh, protest, I, I went and I took a, a jug of oil and just poured it on a baby seal because I just couldn't <laughs> control myself. Uh, but, uh, no, yeah, I mean, I think that that is a really immature response that, that, that some people have had, and I think people mostly don't mean it, but I, I think that there was just a sense on social media at, at that point that that was kind of a, a sentiment that uh, people were responding to positively, so people made it. Um, and yeah, look, I mean, this conversation would not be happening if they didn't do this. It, it did, you know, and in the piece that I wrote, you know, I did say this did generate headlines um, and this did generate conversation. And I think that all is very valuable. I think that there's a limit to the value of the raising awareness in the current context um, and especially around this issue of, you know, keeping it in the ground because you're just not going to have people more aware or talking about more uh, climate change right now, especially, you know, in Britain where there's a huge cost of living crisis, uh, then they are going to be talking about their concerns about how much their heating oil um, is costing them. And so I think that we're in a moment where there's 
limited returns to, to raising awareness and, and I think more, you know, focus uh, should be on really solving the problems, the challenges, um, technological and political that are keeping us from fully deploying the clean energy technologies we already have, building out solar, building out wind, building transmission lines, and also investing in the technologies that we still don't quite have, battery storage that makes it so that solar and wind uh, power can generate um, you know, electricity consistently, not just when the weather cooperates, uh, possibly geothermal energy, nuclear, um, these other things to provide a more stable source of low carbon energy. I think there's like real concrete challenges that we can tackle that will make it easier for us to reconcile the political demands, the short term political demands from electorates for cheap gasoline, cheap heat, cheap electricity, or at least affordable, um, and the prerogative to, uh, or, or, or the, the obligation imperative um, to limit our carbon emissions so that you know, we have a livable planet for our grandchildren. I'm going to go fish that baby seal out of the barrel of oil that you've casually tried to murder, Eric. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Yep, no problem. More Rising right after this. Yay! The artist formerly known as Kanye West could be on the hook for $250 million after he made incendiary remarks about George Floyd's death, claiming that fentanyl was the cause. Here's a clip of that comment. I watched the George Floyd documentary that Candace Owens put up. One of the things that his two roommates said was, they want a tall guy like me. They want a tall guy like me. And the day when he died, he said a prayer for, you know, eight minutes. He said a prayer for eight minutes. They hit him with the fentanyl. If you look, the, the guy's knee wasn't even on his neck like that. The mother of George Floyd's daughter has filed a lawsuit against the rapper for alleging that Derek Chauvin, who held his knee on Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, ultimately killing the 46-year-old man, was not to blame but rather drugs. The host of Drink Champs apologized for airing the episode featuring Ye, saying, quote, I am sorry to anybody who was hurt by his rhetoric, anybody who was hurt by his speech. I want to apologize to the George Floyd family. I want to apologize to anyone who was hurt by someone saying something on my platform. That was the host of the show, not Ye. Right. So people were very upset about this for many reasons, including that this trope, this kind of misinformation about uh, George Floyd uh, dying from fentanyl and not the asphyxiation that we all saw on screen, um, we all saw it, uh, was a common trope that was spread around the right as there was so much popular support behind the George Floyd protests in the spring of 2020. Uh, it, was, it seemed like a, a last ditch kind of flailing effort to try to rehabilitate police, which and a rare occasion of public consensus were perceived to be guilty and were convicted. I mean, there were many. Guilty. There were many on the right, many in conservative media who were also outraged. Oh, uh, I saw that like, Sean Hannity and absolutely. Dan Bongino talked about how. Sure, ab absolutely. It was. Like I said, there was a lot of consensus. Yeah. However, this certainly wasn't a left-wing attempt at rehabilitating the police, spreading around this particular rumor. So people were frustrated because we have already gone through many, many right. cycles of debunking this one. We have had a trial. We have all combed through all of these medical reports, the expert reports, the toxicology right. reports that proved what caused George Floyd's death. So for him to be relitigating this and to say he's doing it because he saw it in a Candace Owens documentary. And it's important because 
So the, the protocol the police took with George Floyd was wrong. He was, you, yeah. you should not have him laying prone and keeping him prone that way for that length of time. Once yeah. the, once the, if he wasn't resisting, once he's secure, you handcuff him, you put him in the car. Yeah. And that was, and it was being called to their attention by onlookers, yeah. by bystanders, that he was in a bad way and they just didn't. Li- so it, it's so, so it's, it's beside, I mean, he, had drugs in his system, et cetera, but that's like beside, beside the, the point, point because they didn't handle it the way they should have. All that, putting all that aside, I don't give this lawsuit much chance mm. um, whatsoever. Uh, it is very, so for defamation, I think it's very hard to proceed when uh, like the person being defamed is dead, like they have to file the defamation. You can have an infliction of, you know, neg- of harmful emotional distress on a family member, which is what they'll have to go through through here. Obviously, it can be successful, right? Alex Jones. Jones. Um, That said, I mean, I'm I'm just looking at, I'm looking at what First Amendment experts are saying Uh, from them. They're saying there's a very little, this is a hard, very difficult tort to collect on. Um, There are all sorts of outs for Kanye's, you know, he's genuinely not informed, um, saying, like, he, he has to have a kind of malice and, and wherewithal to make a deliberately yeah. false claim. And, and also it has to be a fact-based claim rather than someone's opinion. And I, I absolutely, of course, I, the opinion is wrong that he's expressing, but I think it would probably be characterized as an opinion. Yeah, so part of what was happening in the Alex Jones case was that, one, there was a prolonged Yes. campaign over and over to and over spread again. this message and it was one that he profited off of so a lot of the damages the fact that the damages were able yeah. to be so high was because uh, he was sued for violating Connecticut's unfair trade practices act for profiting from the lies he told about the plaintiffs and the shooting on his infowars show so there's two tiers here one you know even if 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 uh, George Floyd's family were able to successfully litigate a claim are they actually going to be able to get damages that are meaningful, especially since this isn't even the prolonged kind of right. campaign that Alex Jones waged against the Sandy Hook family? Sandy Hook family. And two, is there actually liability in the first place? Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they would get to that place. I, I guess it's conceivable that. Um, you know, you get some. You could get some kind of settlement before it gets to that point because it, you know maybe he's busy and doesn't want to even go through the rigmarole of a, mm-hmm. of a trial, which where they where the family would lose, and then they get some kind of. Uh, that's probably the more likely way that they get any money out of him for this. But uh, yeah, my expectation is that this is not really a, a it, 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 right. It's like you said, if he you know goes on a camp on a tour of promoting this, ginning this up to an audience, etc., that might be different. Or if the claims become. Uh, more absurd or more outside the bounds of acceptable kind of, you know, but he, I mean, he did, they did find drugs right in his system. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't. Also, it's interesting there's some the wiggle focus room. on Kanye as opposed to the source material, which I haven't watched, but the Candace Owens documentary mm-hmm. where this apparently, this is being spread at, at this point. You know, this is a profit generating enterprise, I presume. I saw some mixed reports about how many people actually have seen this film and how much it's actually going to earn her money. Regardless, if there is a lawsuit, I'd be interested to see whether or not they loop Candace Owens in that movie. That's a good point because, you know, if he's just saying, I'd have to watch the clip again for exactly how he phrased it, but he's saying, you know, I heard from Candace Owens that this happened, well, then he's just. 
you know, then it's just, then it's it's like he's quoting someone. You, you know, you could yeah. do that's you wouldn't be liable for yeah. that any more than you know a, an objective yeah. news source is liable for saying well reporting on what someone else said. That and, and it's it's worth saying that I, I think that not just the fentanyl thing, but there's this other um, uh, argument about you know a lot of people focus on. You know, did he actually, when he, when he was calling out Mama as he was being uh, strangled to death, was he calling out for his mother or was he calling out for his girlfriend who referred to Mama? These kind of, um, you know, nuances of the debate around George Floyd are, are raised in Candace Owens' documentary and are used to undermine the, 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 the kind of obligation that the police officers had to not kill someone and to act mm -hmm. according to their training. Um, and to deflect blame at the end of the day. And it is an interesting technique that's coming, that, that's being applied here that it's worth right. with keeping an eye on. Because it could be, all, all those things could be all complicating be not, factors. It could be... They're not relevant. Right, it's a, a healthier person, a person of a diff, diff, uh, different physical composition maybe would have survived that same ordeal. I don't see how that, that actually takes away the police's obligation is not to kill blame. anybody yes. and not to pretend, not to presume that you have a hostage. This is not a split-second decision one. Right. This wasn't a was an panicked minutes. shooting. This was, this took a long time. It, and we all, and we all eight, watched it, which is yeah. why there was such public consensus on it. And it is very interesting to, now to see, again, another situation where someone's trying to apparently, you know, profit off of uh, this tragedy by yeah. peddling in, in, in this kind of misinformation. I, I have seen some people laud the documentary for um, the, Owens the documentary. Candace Owens documentary because apparently she talked to George Floyd's family who in many ways was truly wronged by the Black Lives Matter National Organization and so far as they collected all this money, many of them are living in pretty dire straits. And I think that's where you get a lot of hooks into people saying, oh, well, this is a, she's a good guy, this is a good effort, she's trying to support these families. But I think all of these things can be true and that we have to be really circumspect about um, what kinds of information people are trying to foreground to what ends. And I think that's almost mm -hmm. the, the more interesting conversation here than the First Amendment claim, which is, I think, to your point, yeah. unlikely to go very the far. The answer to bad speech is more speech. We should you know, correct the claims he's making if they're wrong. I agree that they are, you know, not sue everyone for everything all the time. Mm -hmm. That's my view. More Rising right after this. Stay tuned. The Kyiv ambassador is predicting that NATO will eventually send fighter jets to Ukraine. The ambassador told Newsweek that discussions about longer-range weapons, fighter jets, and main battle tanks are happening right now among NATO members. According to Newsweek, in fear of provoking Russia, NATO nations are not sending jets or main battle tanks at the moment, but there was, quote, no definite decision. Meanwhile, Reuters is reporting that Ukraine will get anti-drone systems in the coming days. NATO will deliver air defense systems to Ukraine that will help the country defend itself against drones, including those from Iran that Russia is using to attack Ukraine's infrastructure. Well, at one point, does this become, if it, then it's as if Ukraine is in NATO, it's, if NATO is, is in fact defending Ukraine to that degree. Taking the idea of a proxy war to new heights mm -hmm. at a certain point, it just is explosive, the long complex. Explosive new heights. Yeah, it, it, it is interesting that this is being thrown out kind of like this. Oh, we're not doing it yet, but it's not off the table. I, I do feel as though, and again, this isn't to minimize the extent to which Putin did do the invasion, but I feel like this in any other context would be considered to be a provoca uh, provocation that we would look down on as a you know, global community that's interested in pushing this well, I, toward peace. I mean, we should just call it what it is. If, if it's just an open war against Russia in response to them invading Ukraine, 
I mean, fine. I mean, not fine because we shouldn't do that yeah. because it risks uh, World War III yeah. and nuclear annihilation. But that is what it's becoming at yep. some point if we're just going to arm them to that. And I say we, I, I do, it is more appropriate for, in my view, for European nations to, if they want to defend Ukraine, I, what is, again, they're there, they're the neighbors of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They, I, I'm, I, I don't think it's insane for them to have some concerns about Russia's expansion. Uh, you know, let them pay for it. They've been free riders um, on, the, on the U.S. defending the world tour for One of Trump's 80 best years. points. Yeah, no, he's not wrong. He, he's yeah. called them out. Let them pay for it. So I don't, I, I don't necessarily hate it's the also, idea of not, Europe contributing to Ukraine's defense, but and now fighter jets, yeah. tanks. And what it's is, not is entirely that, clear that, that all these European nations are uniformly on board. You know, mm -hmm. this is largely certainly not the people in all European Ameri nations. America's are. provocation. When we go back to the um, Medan coup and the, the the reporting we've had about the constant interference of the West and dissuading people away from negotiations with the Kremlin and all of these kinds of things. And, I, and you see, you saw that moment that we talked about last week or the week before with Joe Biden standing um, next to uh, uh, the German official saying there are ways to blow up the North, sorry, there are ways to prevent um, the Nord Stream pipeline coming into effect, mm -hmm. you know, and the, you know, Germans' interest being counter to America's interest there. You know, it, it, there are tensions that are rising. And it's not clear that if it were just European countries, we would have gotten to this level of conflict in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a good question. Well, White House Real Clear Politics reporter Philip Wegman asked White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about nuclear Armageddon. Let's watch that. Shifting to a different topic then, um, why is it that the president was talking about nuclear Armageddon behind closed doors to political donors two weeks ago? rather than speaking directly with the American people about that topic. Well, there was press, your colleagues, there were a few of your colleagues that were in the room. Hmm. Oh, uh, in Joe Biden's parlance, I'm going to call uh, malarkey on that one. The implication that just because there were some people in the room in a closed donor meeting that happened to have press badges, it doesn't it, it, right. it undermines the fundamental question, which is, why is Joe Biden entertaining and acknowledging the incredible threat that is being presented by this escalation of conflict in Ukraine and Russia? Right. And, and I assume it was an off. It, it could be that there were press there for but whatever the reason, yeah. but they're not allowed to report on it. Mm -hmm. So that so that does not satisfy the question at all. Just because there's press there doesn't mean they're allowed to cover it or acknowledge it happened. There you know, might be some rule. I'm sure you've been at events like that before. I have as well. It's very common for journalists to you know, some kind of context to inform their reporting, but they can't actually mm -hmm. report on the event itself. Mm -hmm. So that, no, that is not open to the press just because press were there. That's a really basic one. Um, yeah. It, it, look, it's concerning because it does speak to a um, broader minimization of the real threat of this conflict, which I think speaks to an acknowledgement, mm -hmm. a tacit acknowledgement from the administration that if the public were fully considering what was at stake here, the political support for a conflict which has already dim has diminished political report mm -hmm. might be even uh, support rather might be even worse might be even lower but that is the conversation we should be having and that is the conversation that has obviously been ha been had on alternative media shows like these a lot of shows that I listen to from the left it is deeply concerning that in response to a reasonable question like that in the White House press room all Karine Jean-Pierre has to say is, hey, there were press there. Stop asking follow-up questions about nuclear Armageddon. It's consistently interesting how much this phenomenon repeats itself. The people, Amer the American people, right and left, center, every which direction, 
being much more skeptical of foreign entanglement, of of military intervention, et cetera, than the people in charge of the country at every mm. at every level, and and totally in a cross-partisan, cross-ideological way. And so it would not surprise me at all that if that is, I think that it certainly is the case to some extent. The question is how great the extent is. I, you know, I would love to see more polling from the actual American people on how they feel about um, the Ukraine effort right now. And I, I, I'm sure there's broad support for what, uh, you know, moral support for what Ukraine is going through, uh, you know, dis, dislike of Putin's regime, which is authoritarian and, and has done this illegal invasion. But a real um, concern also about how energy prices are yes. affecting people in Europe, are affecting themselves, are affecting working people in this country. And, you know, uh, I, I would expect there to be a skepticism, the skepticism that you and I have, and that, again, I think a lot of people have, that whatever it takes, as long as it takes, you know, here's a blank check, fill in the dollar amount you want for weapon systems and missiles is not in keeping with the American public's view of yeah. what we should be doing. Yeah, I, I want to see those polls, but I want to see those polls after there's a round of questions about what it means for the Secretary of Defense to have come through Raytheon's revolving mm -hmm. doors. Sure. I want the questions about uh, the 20 odd members of Congress who are directly profiting from their uh, defense investments from this war. I want to see questions about the direct link, as I talked about in my radar today, between uh, fuel costs for Americans and the uh, war in Ukraine. I want to see all of those questions and then a follow-up about the uh, how much Americans support this war because there's, there's an inconsistency here. We just talked in a, in a different segment with Eric Levitz from uh, New York Ma uh, Magazine about whether or not the, the, the painting protests in England were a good idea, throwing a canned soup at a Van Gogh to raise uh, climate awareness. And the argument that he was making was that you know at the end of the day, you know, it's not popular to have a hard shift right now to the Green New Deal because people have these energy concerns. Well, people have energy concerns about in America right now, and there is no entanglement of the conversation about whether or not we should be sending all of this aid to Ukraine and whether or not it's hurting people at the pump. The 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 media change like whitewashes the conversation so that those things aren't being put in tension in the way that I think sometimes in bad faith, the idea that the Green New Deal is going to hurt working people is a contrast that people don't hesitate to make. Well, and I think it has to do with the people, the interests that are running a lot of these media institutions. I mean, I, I would not advise pro-Ukrainian activists to throw soup at paintings either. I would say that's not a smart way to spread awareness of your cause. Yeah, I don't. I think, I think the issue there is that there is a lot of awareness, and I think well-deserved sympathy for lives of Ukrainian people being lost. Mm -hmm. There is not a lot of empathy for the thousands of people who die as a consequence of uh, carbon emissions, whether because of air quality, whether because of poisoning, and uh, and uh, from oil spills, uh, or any other uh, uh, climate change. A third of Pakistan being underwater, fifteen hundred people dying in that recent flooding event, etc. And I think asking the question of whether or not people care more about a Van Gogh painting than human lives is an important one to be asking. We had a. Spicy discussion about this <laughs> off camera, actually, unfortunately. So you're going to miss that, but maybe we'll maybe we'll revisit the maybe topic we'll tomorrow. Maybe we'll revisit the topic.
Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back covering all the news of the day. Uh, we're not sure if we'll have a stupendous show, a momentous <laughs> show, or something else. I might just, you know, ad-lib what kind of show we're doing. I don't know. Stay, it'll be so exciting, you're really, you're, you're really going to regret it if you don't tune in. All right, I'm looking forward to A Block. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. See ya.